Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. This program is brought to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation with the help of the UTS Business School and broadcast all around Australia on the Community Radio Network. This week, our focus turns to where women in Australia find themselves in the federal government's roadmap to recovery. Criticism has already been levelled at the government's $240 million Women's Economic Security Funding Package that aims to support a return to the workforce for many, greater opportunities in STEM industries and channels for female entrepreneurs and startups. It's a mere fraction of the spending over the last few months, but how little is too little to help women who have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic? To discuss this, I'm joined today by Catherine O'Regan, Executive Director of the Sydney Business Chamber, and Dr Alice Kletner, Senior Lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School. Thank you very much for joining us. Some of these statistics about women in the workforce over the last few months are quite startling. In Australia, women made up the majority of those who were affected by job loss during COVID-19. The Australia Institute found that between March and April, the number of women employed fell by 5.3% compared to 3.9% for men. And those numbers of hours worked by Australian women also fell much faster. Women lost 11.5% of their hours compared to 7.5% for men. So there's clearly a disparity. The numbers do not lie. Now, the government announced $240 million in measures and programs to support female workplace participation under the Women's Economic Security Statement. Last week, we had UTS academic Nicole Sutton on, and she raised the fact that of the $507 billion, including $257 billion in direct economic support from the federal government since the pandemic started... That $240 million, it's a fraction entirely. Alice, if you'd like to start, you've taken a look through this particular item. Just to start off the discussion, what are your general thoughts around it? Well, I'd agree with Nicole that it does seem to be quite a, a blokey budget with um, a lot of money going towards industries. I think it was construction, defence, agriculture, whereas, as you were saying, all of these women who've lost their jobs, they're, they're in they're in travel, um, tourism, hospitality. So there's a disconnect there. And I suppose the other thing that I noticed when I was looking at, at, at where the, some of the um, some of the programs in the women's economic security statement we're looking at was that a lot of it was looking at young people and i know it's the young women who have lost more jobs but i also feel that there wasn't much there for the older women um, who also you know and perhaps more experienced people who are going to struggle to move to other industries because because that's the interesting thing about covid it's just destroyed whole industries so in terms of losing jobs and then and getting back into the workforce, if you're in one of those industries like travel or tourism, it's going to be very, very hard to find anything without completely reskilling. And particularly when you're talking about older women, those aged 35 and over, really, in the context of these government support packages, job maker the hiring credit, which will see employers paid a weekly amount to take on workers aged 35 and younger. Obviously, as you've just mentioned, Alice, a lot of this budget goes towards supporting young people as not only is that a practical decision, but they're the future of Australian democracy. They're the ones that will be the major income earners and the major voters over the next 20 odd years. So you can understand why it is important to support them at a time like this. I'm thinking more in the context of completely 
changing industry, if that's what you might have to do, that, that would be very difficult at that age. Obviously, there are also other barriers that we've seen in, in the workplace in terms of um, just getting up into, you know, boards and senior executive positions for, for women. And of course, we haven't talked yet about the gender pay gap, which is another issue that is sort of touched on in the Women's Economic Security Statement. But again, there's, there's not much action in that area. I'd love to see a bit more action in making sure that that businesses are accountable for trying to close that that pay gap too. And if I might just actually jump in for a second, Catherine, talking about accountability for business, do you think that part of the government's logic is essentially that, as often with the Liberal Party, that the market will correct itself and that it's the onus is on business itself to give women these opportunities as opposed to a government measure to essentially force the market into doing so? Do you think that there's a level of credence to that? Yeah, maybe picking up a point earlier is that, you know, we've heard the the line, I think, many times now, this has to be a business-led economic recovery. And so, you know, those levers that the federal government is trying to pull is, is, you know, how do we facilitate, how do we enable businesses to to recover and, and do better, not just in the short term, but over the long term. So you can see that the government's put sort of both hands on the wheel saying, right, the government can stimulate and do and have some initiatives, but it's also got, got to reach into its own balance sheet and its own funds to really drive that stimulus, which I think, as we were saying just at the preface of this discussion is, so the idea of surplus and deficit has to definitely be in part while we really sort of supercharge, you know, those levers to get a business-led recovery, um, it it then does beg the question: Does rising the tide, which I think has been the approach here, to say all will benefit, irrespective of gender? So there is, I think, some value in doing that. Um, but where I think the the commentary has centred then is: Well, well, wait a minute. There has been some adverse and imbalance with the impact of men versus women and so special more targeted um, measures need to be in place so I think there's definitely like a typical coalition government budget let's get business to do the work we'll 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 give them the levers we'll give them opportunities to accelerate depreciation to write off Um, we'll start to think about how business can thrive and ha- and can recover but but that's you know looking at across the board measures rather than targeted and specific ones for women and and as you've highlighted there is that, so there are sectors there are industries where women have been not just impacted through hospitality and tourism but conversely also working in the front line whether that's aged care or um, or nursing so you know those areas definitely do think um, I do think need some further attention at both the state and the and the federal government level one of the budget's big items is once again personal income tax relief the government is delivering an additional 17.8 billion dollars in personal income tax relief and that's including an additional 12.5 billion over the next 12 months so around 11 million australians will see a tax cut in 2020-2021 is it fair to argue as many have that tax cuts are not gender exclusive 
and that women will benefit just as much as men. Do you think that that's a fair argument to make, obviously, in light of the fact that only $240 million otherwise has been devoted specifically to women? Yeah, look, I think um, there's definitely how do we get people to have the confidence and the capacity to to spend and more money in the pocket. And we know women are often the decision makers in in households about the spending. So so that I think um, is is definitely a, a valuable approach. It doesn't, as um, Paula just emphasised, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's always gender equity in pay. So 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 again, there may be an element of disproportionality as to who's going to have more money in their pocket. The household might, but it still might be that the, the male in the household is the dominant income earner. But but if there's capacity for both to spend, then more opportunities can can be eventuated for for everybody, including including women. I think there's some policy levers around um, superannuation and some policy levers around gender pay gap that definitely still need to be addressed. So the spending measures, the increase in confidence, the income tax measures can over time benefit women and, and start putting a bit more of a level playing field in place. And Alice, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I think there's so many factors, aren't there? So, of course, income tax cuts are great, but are they an incentive to, to you know, to women to participate in the workforce? Well, not always, no, because, well, A, a do women have jobs at the moment? Because if you don't have a job, you don't have an income and you're not going to be too interested in income tax cuts. So there's that end of the scale but also and this is this is where we get into things like childcare, don't we because if if childcare is the biggest thing coming out of your income then again the income tax cuts are, are you know are, are just not significant or at least in my own experience they would not be significant because childcare can be s- such a large portion of your of your income so yes I think I agree that it's Good, but there are other issues. There's and of course the superannuation we talked about, and I think that's a major thing. And I was glad to see at least some thinking around that in in the um, economic security statement. But I think there needs to be more done in that area as well. Superannuation has been a big topic of interest over the pandemic, and obviously we we covered it ourselves on the program, particularly during the period where a lot of Australians were taking out money from their super fund, particularly those under the age of 35. Do you think that it has more adversely affected women in the sense that more younger women are taking money out of their supers because maybe they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of employment coming out of the pandemic? Do you think that any of the these budget measures would have potentially injected a bit of optimism to a lot of, not necessarily young women, but that is a demographic that's been very adversely affected. I'm happy to jump in there and, and say, look, I I, I worry about um, women at all ages when it comes to superannuation and, um, you know, we're not necessarily encouraging women to contribute to their super, even though that financial independence is so important later in, in, in their in their life and their 
career whether they choose to stay in one or 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 not and I kind of feel that what we've got here is some really critical things around that age group of 35 though because that's often you know whether you you're at the you're thinking about family or you may have a young family so you're not contributing to your super and likewise you don't necessarily if you're in a necessarily you've had in the COVID environment the job security so you've got this double whammy so uh, drawing on your super which is going to have less funds there than a male of the same age is really putting you at a further disadvantage when it comes to drawing on your superannuation proper and um, I, you know, I, I can just if we can encourage women not to do that if they can avoid it as possible because that that will enable such greater financial security and independence impacting them significantly later on so we've got to address this superannuation issue now for that age group and for the age groups that will come through who are, you know, whether they're studying at university or at earlier stages in their career. And you did mention childcare earlier in the discussion. I think it's particularly interesting given that many people have argued there's a lack of concrete support for childcare services. And despite obviously calls from the sector itself and the opposition to extend or increase support for childcare over the pandemic, there is no new funding in the budget except obviously for providers in Victoria who will be receiving $315 million. So we've obviously spoken about the fact that it does appear to be a missed opportunity to help return mums and and carers in general to the workforce. What are some of the greater costs? You mentioned the idea that superannuation will become an issue. Paid parental leave was a big topic the government have obviously changed their paid parental leave plans and legislation, but still resisted calls to include superannuation payments as part of that scheme. So when we're talking about childcare superannuation, do you think that this policy is going to have consequences? Um, It's certainly not encouraging more female participation in the workforce because we really need to get childcare down to, you know, childcare costs down across the board in order to do that. And, and what annoys me, having some, been someone who has used childcare, is the, the way they're talking about you know, fees per hour, $5 or $10 per hour, because it's not how childcare works. You have to put your child in for a whole day and there's a daily fee. Um, and also you probably have more than one child, at least for some of those years of your career, um, which means you're doubling all those fees. So they are quite significant. And I think the way it's discussed in the budget sometimes, um, you know, makes makes the figures look much smaller than they actually are. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And maybe I'd like to sort of segue a little bit. Childcare is so critical to the equation here. Um, and I'm kind of hoping, though, that the whole idea of flexible work hours, as we've seen more and more employers and employees thinking that the way that they work and where they work can now be quite different. And if that can can help solve some of this, how do I balance my you know family responsibilities with my my income? I'm not saying this is an excuse not to fund childcare at all. I'm very much a supporter of that. But if 
if there's a way that we can have more flexible workplaces that eases the burden and so so whoever is the primary carer which we know is mostly women don't have to make a choice between work and and family they can do both then I would like to see a greater acceptance of what's wrong with you know um, someone coming into the office three days a week at midday um, so someone else can do the early morning shift with family and then they work later at night um, and finish up so that they can, you know, share those responsibilities in a far more equitable way without the, the extra stress. So if there's something good out of this sort of COVID crisis and we can build a, a COVID-safe economy, if, there, if we can have greater use of flexible work hours and flexible work places um then some of those things at the margins with childcare needs maybe can can also help and keep keep women who want to work you know employed i'm so glad you said that actually um because i think that's that is the main positive thing that's come out of this and and it's not just allowing women to be more flexible it's allowing men to be more flexible because that then frees up the women and i think it you know it's it's making that flexible work for all all people who would like it uh, the norm, I guess, uh, and continuing the positive things that have occurred during the, the pandemic in that sense, because I think that can make a, a big difference. Um, reduced commuting time and all of those other aspects. Do you think that perceptions of the impact of childcare are going to change? Catherine, you've obviously just mentioned that flexible working hours are going to free up a lot of time, but do you think that it will make a sizable difference in the way that we perceive childcare in the future and then obviously link it into the productivity of a workforce, which it does have a very strong effect on? I think there's been a changing perception over time and many of the things um, that COVID has done is it has accelerated some uh, changes and some thinking. You know, we, 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 I think it's highlighted that we don't have any excuses anymore and you know, nothing like a crisis to give that sort of sense of urgency. So it's shone a light on an issue. It's shown that we haven't looked at this childcare piece um, to the extent that we should. Um, and I think it will hasten our change in perception, which was probably just plodding away. And so it can can be you know a an advantage now to think how can we work differently how can we organize our work and home lives differently and how can we accelerate some of those things uh, some of those changes to enable things to be more equitable so i'm answering your question saying it will change and and sooner rather than later that's my hope Particularly interesting, actually, last time uh, we had both yourself and Alice on the show, we were talking about the lack of women in leadership roles in business. And I think it's it's particularly interesting, $47 million over four years to increase grants for the Women's Leadership and Development Program. So it includes funding specifically for courses encouraging education for girls on entrepreneurship and business. As a business leader yourself... Do you find that these programs are effective? I'm sure probably over your career you've seen a few government directives uh, trying to get women into the workforce, trying to break those glass ceilings and, and have more women in leadership positions. Do you think that $50 million over four years is an adequate amount of money? And do you think that 
these sort of fundamental changes to the landscape of business can be directed from the top down? Interesting uh, range of questions there. And um, one of the things I have learned over time is it feels like we go with women in leadership roles, sometimes two steps forward, one step back. And some of the you know, more recent data has sort of showing there's even from you know, women on boards or women in um, senior executive roles, you know, it started to almost either plateau or go slightly negative and um it's it almost should be the reverse right here right now in the sense of when you have occasions where you need leaders who you know this is stereotypical of women who tend to be more collaborative who tend to listen more you know we we need to start uniting people and so the skills and competencies that women in general, tend to be very strong. Um, is sort of what we need in leadership right here, right now. And it, whether that's budget measures to enable that, whether it's corporations to enable that. I did like in the budget the work that was done around entrepreneurship. And that's, that's hard to get women to think, I've got a great idea. How, what do I do about it? How do I get a business started? Um, and I'm still, in any ways, disappointed that we have a third of small businesses are run by women um i'd love to see that half you know 50 percent. so there's a lot more work we can do to give women though the confidence um and the opportunity to to make some of these uh, whether you're leading a corporation or leading a small business or thinking about a new idea so some government injection helps I think um, it can be directed in more ways and again there's federal budget and we've got the pending state budget coming up which sometimes can start to pull down uh, at the next level of support to enable whether it's uh, accelerated investment in small businesses for women whether it's looking at upskilling and at the TAFE level I think some of the measures were there but you know funding from state could really help women learn about how to bring their idea to fruition so it's it's really interesting when we have times like this because you you want to create you, you need action, but we can't forget that all need to act and all need to lead and, and women can really be valuable in these leadership roles right here, right now. So I would encourage every young person, looking, women, female listening to this is, you know, you've got a good idea, talk to people about it, reach out to some programs that exist, um, and but they also encourage both the state and the federal government to do more in this regard. And and let me add, local government can have some great programs that encourage women, entrepreneurship, small business and leadership as well. So it, you look for places where you can get help. And in your experience, I know this may come across as being quite cynical, but I can imagine that a lot of people would be thinking along these lines, at least those of my generation. Can money realistically erode cultural barriers and can a $50 million injection over four years make a genuine difference in visibility for women in leadership roles? Do you think that obviously the money will establish channels to allow young women to find their niche, find their career, and then I can imagine the rest of that is up to them and their own abilities as a professional. But when you're also talking about that $40 million going towards uh, co-funded grants for women-founded startups, 
and you were mentioning the fact that, you know, is it difficult for a young woman who has this fantastic idea to take that next step? Do you think that that money will successfully change those barriers to entry that currently exist? Or is it maybe cynical but realistic to assume that it'll take a lot more than $50 million over the Ford estimates to make a difference? I think there's a bit of healthy cynicism there. And um, and look, money doesn't solve all problems, um, but it definitely helps. And the, the idea if there are more women who have great ideas that can be supported, then hopefully, you know, 10 other women see that, are inspired by that, and other people can help them. So I guess it can help. It's not the panacea to these sorts of things. Um, you know, you always, I think, have an obligation to to pay back and pay back more in the sense of, you know, I know many women who have been beneficiaries of programs. There's a fantastic one um, around Blue Chili was doing an, an on, women's entrepreneurship called She Starts. And as part of that program, you know, they, the women who go through that and succeed through that go on to help other women as they are also growing their business. So if, if it can cascade and um, be like a snowball to impact people, then not just those benefici- direct beneficiaries, but allied to that then I think you get your return on your your 50 million but it's got to be duplicated almost a hundred times to to really start bringing about cultural change otherwise it's almost like I said before it's two steps forward one step back you see someone who succeeded really well but then that's one person Uh, it's not the 10 that could also be equally as smart and have an equally fantastic idea. Well, that's about it for today's show. In the words of Kiwi-born modernist writer Catherine Mansfield, I must say I hate money, but it's the lack of it that I hate the most. Wise words indeed. Thank you to our guests, Catherine O'Regan and Alice Kletner. I've been your host, Max Tillman. Until next week.